It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Ingrid Fattel Lee is a designer by trade but began studying joy when she noticed simple pleasures like bubbles, rainbows, and hot air balloons. She discovered these items weren't just joyful to her, but to everyone. This universal joy, she says, is significant. We live in a world that is so sharply divided and polarized that sometimes it can feel like our differences are so stark as to be insurmountable. And so to me, there's something really powerful in the idea that we all find joy in some of the same things. Today, Fatel Lee explains the difference between happiness and joy, and how we can stimulate our senses to produce joy. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Just how important is an environment to our well-being? Research shows the physical world can be a powerful tool for cultivating happier, healthier lives and joyful moments. Ingrid Fattel Lee discovered workers in colorful offices are more alert, friendly, and confident than those in drab ones. Windows can quicken healing, and children progress faster in classrooms with better lighting. Fattel Lee is the author of Joyful, the Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. Aesthetics are incredibly important to producing joy, she says. Joy may be held in small moments, but it can have profound effects that ripple out. She begins her talk at the Aspen Ideas Festival with an exercise you can join. Here's Fatel Lee. I'm going to be talking about joy today, but what I'd love to start with is actually um, a little exercise. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. We won't do this for very long, but if you just close your eyes for just a minute. And what I'd like you to do is see if you can remember a moment when you felt true and unfettered joy. It might be a moment when you felt completely free, or a moment when you laughed so hard that it hurt. It might be a moment when the world felt magical to you, or maybe it was just a time when you were surprised by a simple pleasure. And if a moment or several moments comes up, just Take notice of where you were, what was around you, who you were with. See if you can sort of flesh out this memory a little bit. And if not, that's fine. Just stay open to it. I know it's hard. It's first thing in the morning. And what I'd like you to do is see if you can notice what joy feels like in your body. Is it in any particular place? Does it have a temperature or a texture or a color? Is it still or is it moving? We'll just take a few more seconds here just to notice that. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. And I'm curious if anyone wants to share what joy felt like for them. Any, anyone brave wants to share? I did the same exercise with uh, spirituality. Yes. You really can't locate it. It's like it irradiates in your body. That's how I feel. Did you say it radi- radiates? Radiates. Radiates. Okay. Yeah. Great. Anyone else? My son gave me a standard poodle puppy for my birthday. Definite and when I was joy. watching her run around, um, I just felt such joy. It felt like sun shining on my shoulders and radiating. Radiating, sunshine. Yeah. Great. Anyone else have something different that it felt like for them? I just remember smiling a lot. 
you know, I, I kind of experience it in my face, you know, my head. Yeah, so you actually feel it on your, uh, you feel it on your face, yeah. Um, great, okay, so thank you for doing this exercise with me. Um, the reason that I like to start with this is because I think that as a culture, we are obsessed with the pursuit of happiness and we, in the process, kind of forget about joy. And it's probably worth me taking a minute to pull these two ideas apart because we often use them interchangeably in our society. Um, but they're actually different things. So happiness um, is a broad evaluation of how we feel about our lives over time. Um, if you were to think about how happy you are in this moment on a scale of one to 10, it's hard to just pick a number, right? Um, because you have to think about how you feel about your work, how you feel about um, you, you, whether you feel like you have a sense of meaning and purpose in your life, how you feel about your health, how connected you feel to other people. And so often what happens is that one area of our lives is up and the, another is down, and it's hard to know exactly how happy we are. It's big and complex. But joy is much simpler and more immediate. So the way that psychologists define joy is, is an intense, momentary experience of positive emotion. And it's one that we can actually measure through direct physical expressions. So smiling is one of them. Um, laughter, a feeling of wanting to jump up and down. Um, and I, I think that exercise is really interesting because if, if I were to ask you what anxiety feels like in your body, you could probably tell me instantly. And we all know what anxiety feels like in our body, but we forget that joy has a feeling too, that there, is, that there is a visceral quality to it. And so to me, I think there's power in understanding that, that feeling so we can notice it more often. I think because moments of joy are small, they're just these little moments that make us feel a bit more alive. But because they're small, we're tempted to overlook them. And to me, that's a shame, because these small moments of joy actually have surprisingly big effects. And I want to talk about a few of them. Um, so the first is that joy is contagious. Of course, all our emotions are contagious. We spread them to each other through our tone of voice, our gestures. Even our walks carry emotional information that we share um, with each other. And one of the consequences of this is that it actually changes how people perceive us. Um, so research shows that joy can actually make us more physically attractive. Scientists have tested this by um, taking these computer-generated faces. They're composite faces, they're not real people, and they've t taken some that they've constructed to be really, really good-looking, and they've made those faces not smiling. And then they've taken um, faces that are, they deem average-looking. They have independent raters rate these faces, and they're average-looking, and they make them smile. And what they find is that the smiling, average-looking faces are considered more physically attractive than the supposedly really, really good-looking faces, the model good-looking faces. So um, it's one reason why supermodels should probably smile more. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they're also some surprising consequences of this. So for example, when salespeople exhibit genuine joy, and it can't be faked or forced, but when it's genuine, we spend more time browsing in a store, we are more likely to return for a repeat visit, and we give higher customer satisfaction ratings. Um, joy also sharpens our minds. So um, research shows that business people make better decisions when they're in a state of joy, and they consider a broader range of scenarios in the process. 
um, joyful leaders are more engaged, uh, have more engaged teams, and their teams complete their work in a more coordinated way with less effort. And some research shows that we are actually up to 12% more productive in a state of joy. So I think while we often see joy as a distraction from success, it's something that we put off to our nights and our weekends because it doesn't belong in the workplace. In fact, joy can be a catalyst for our success. Joy also opens us up to new ideas. So if we're in any kind of line of work where we're trying to open people's minds, joy is, can be a really powerful tool for us. Um, one of the theories behind the evolution of positive emotion is called broaden and build. And the idea behind broaden and build is this, that our negative emotions evolve to narrow our focus, to help us pay attention to immediate threats and deal with those in a, in a rapid way, right? So if you hear a noise in the middle of the night, you wake up, you are startled, you have a, an orienting response, and you feel a sense of anxiety, that anxiety doesn't go away until you figure out what is wrong, right? You're immediately focused on figuring out what that noise is. You're not thinking about what you're gonna have for breakfast tomorrow, you're not thinking about where you're gonna go on your next vacation, you are thinking about what's happening in that moment. But if we were always in that state, we would never have the space to learn, to grow, to build resources for the future. And so the theory behind broaden and build is that this is what our positive emotions evolve to do. They broaden our attention, they allow us to take in um, a greater variety of sources of information, to explore, to form new connections. Um, and so, you know, there's research that shows that joy increases our cognitive flexibility, a measure of creativity, a measure of broadened attention um, that allows us to be more open to new things and new ideas. Joy also strengthens our relationships. So I always tell people if you're going on a first date, a really good thing to do is to go to a comedy club or something that makes you laugh. Because studies show that laughter actually makes us more likely to share personal details about ourselves. So rather than just sort of staying at the surface with the small talk, we actually get to the real stuff more quickly. Um, there's also research that shows that when we celebrate with other people, when we celebrate good news with our partner, for example, um, that measures of trust, intimacy, connection and a sense of satisfaction with our relationship goes up. So one of the best things we can do for our relationships is to share our joy and to celebrate our partner's joy with them. And lastly, joy makes us more resilient. So just as we often put off joy because we think that it's, um, it's not related to our success, I think often in difficult times, in times of stress or crisis, we postpone joy because we think it's not relevant or because we feel guilty um, enjoying ourselves, possibly feeling a, a moment of joy while, stress is, you know, while a stressful time is happening. But if you think about the way that our stress response was designed, our stress response, or evolved, our stress response evolved in to meet the challenges of short-term threats. So for example, if we're being chased by a lion, our bodies respond with a stress response that includes cortisol and adrenaline, our respiration rate increases, our heart rate increases, and we're ready to deal with that threat. And I think what's happened now is that we often find ourselves in a situation where we're not running from lions, but we have our phones with us all the time, and that's where the lions live, right? Um, and we're always running from lions. And so our stress response rises, and it never sort of recedes back to a, a normal level, a natural level. And, um, and so we sort of live in this state of burnout where our... Um, where you know, we lose our resilience because we're always in this state of stress. Research shows that little moments of joy can actually 
actually help to counteract that stress response, can help to reset the cardiovascular system, um, to protect our hearts over the long haul, and that when we find little moments of joy in a crisis, for example, in a tragic time, it helps us make better sense of what's happening. We find more meaning and purpose in a catastrophic event, and we cope in a more adaptive way. So I think instead of seeing joy as a distraction from dealing with difficult things, we often say, oh, I just have to get through this presentation. I don't have time to do that fun thing now. We make small moments, room for small moments of joy. They actually can help us be more resilient over the long haul. So I think in a meaningful way, when we focus on joy, these small moments start to add up over time, and they lead to what looks like happiness. Now, I should take a step back, um, because, of course, I didn't set out to study joy. I set out to study design. Any of you who know my background or have read my bio know that I'm a designer. Um, and I really didn't think much about joy until my first year of design school. And it was the end of my first year. I was at a review. I had laid out everything I had made over the course of the semester. And a professor, I had a panel of professors critiquing my work. And a professor said, your work gives me a feeling of joy. And I thought, well, that's weird. Because I had always thought of joy as this elusive, ephemeral, fleeting feeling. Certainly, it wasn't something that came from stuff, material things. I think. You know, many of us are conditioned, you know, we're raised to believe that stuff isn't important. We're not supposed to think too much about that. So we're not, we don't want to be materialistic, right? So we're not supposed to think too much about the stuff that's around us. Joy comes from within. And so here was a professor saying that something I had made gave him a feeling of joy. So I asked the professors, I said, how do things make us feel joy? How do tangible things create this intangible feeling of joy? And they couldn't answer the question. And so that sent me off on a journey that I didn't know at the time would take me 10 years, that I'd still be doing this now, um, to understand what is that connection between the physical world around us and this mysterious, quixotic emotion that we call joy. And what I discovered is that not only are those two things linked, much more than we've ever been conditioned to believe, but that the physical world can actually be a resource to us in cultivating happier and healthier lives. And that as a designer, we can, I, you know, I can start to see ways that we can actually put that into practice. So after this review and after this question just wouldn't leave me alone, I figured the best way to start answering it was to just start asking people, where does joy come from? So I started talking to people. Lots of people I just met on the street. I went out into the middle of Rockefeller Center and I just started tapping people on the shoulder and saying, will you tell me what brings you joy? And I noticed a couple things. The first thing is that there are certain things that are very personal. You know, everyone has them. They're things that we've learned through our life experience that bring us joy. For me, the wallpaper in my grandmother's kitchen, when I see that anywhere, it brings me a feeling of joy. It probably wouldn't do anything for any of you, um, but, it's, but it speaks to me. So we all have those things. But there were some things in talking to people that just seemed to keep coming up again and again and again. They weren't so personal. They were things like cherry blossoms and bubbles, swimming pools and tree houses, hot air balloons and googly eyes, <laughs> and rainbows and rainbow sprinkles. There's something about these things that cut across lines of age and gender and ethnicity. They're not joyful for just a few people. They're joyful for nearly everyone. They're universally joyful. And when I saw them all together, it gave me this indescribably hopeful feeling. We live in a world that is so sharply divided and polarized that 
sometimes it can feel like our differences are so stark as to be insurmountable. And so to me, there's something really powerful in the idea that we all find joy in some of the same things. That underneath that all, there's this part of us that has this silly little attraction to things like googly eyes and rainbows. And we all have that in us. And while we're often told that those are just passing pleasures, in fact, they're really important because they remind us of our shared connection to the physical world. So this was interesting to me, but I still needed to understand what it was about these things that made them so joyful. I had pictures of them pinned up on my studio wall, and every day I would come in and look at them and try to make sense of it, and then one day something just clicked. I saw all these patterns, so round things, pops of bright color, symmetrical shapes and repeating patterns, a sense of abundance and multiplicity, a feeling of lightness or elevation. When I looked at it this way, I realized that yes, the feeling of joy is mysterious and elusive, but we can actually access it through tangible physical attributes or what designers like me call aesthetics. And that word I think often has lofty connotations it's associated with art and associated with beauty, but in fact, the root of that word is the same root as the Greek word asthenome, which means I feel, I sense, I perceive. What these patterns were telling me is that joy begins with the senses. And so I started calling them aesthetics of joy, the sensations of joy. And I gave them names that related to the kind of joy that they seemed to elicit. And I found more of them. Uh, so for example, freedom, the joy we find in nature, wildness and open space. Magic, the joy we find in things we can't quite pin down, like the light shattered through a prism into a rainbow, or the way the northern lights move overhead, the winking of a firefly in the darkness. Surprise, the aesthetic of contrast and the unexpected. Celebration, of course, what happens in a moment of intense joy, if your team's winning, for example, you throw your arms up, we burst open. That feeling of radiating that some of you talked about is really on display in this, in this aesthetic of celebration. Um, we see it when we dance, we see it when we celebrate, and we often see radiating shapes as part of celebrations around the world. And renewal, the aesthetic of blossoming and growth and potential. Altogether, I identified 10 of these aesthetics of joy, and they became like a, a set of triggers uh, that I could understand. I could look at, out at the world around me and notice these things and notice the effect that they had on me and on other people. And in the wake of this, I noticed something, that as I walked around, I started seeing little moments of joy everywhere I went. It was like I had a pair of rose-colored glasses or like a secret decoder ring for joy. And now that I knew what it looked like, I was seeing joy everywhere. It was like hiding in plain sight. So I started calling this joy spotting and I put a hashtag on it, um, partially because I guess that's what you do these days, but partially because it was an invitation to share it with other people. This became a kind of mindfulness practice for me and I wanted to share it with others um, and allow others to share what they were finding uh, that was joyful. And I've heard from people who do this, families who do it in the car on the ride to school, um, or people who do it along their commute, as a way to reconnect to your surroundings and recognize that anywhere you are in a given moment, you can find something that can lift your spirits. At the same time as I was joy spotting and walking around and the world felt so much more joyful to me, I noticed something else, which is that if these are the things that bring us joy, then why are they so missing? 
from so many places in our world. Why do we go to work here? Why do we send our kids to schools that look like this? Why do our cities look like this? And this is most extreme in the places that house the people who are most vulnerable in our society. Nursing homes, hospitals, homeless shelters, housing projects. How did we end up in a world that looks like this? We all start out joyful. But as we get older, being colorful or exuberant opens us up to judgment. When you look at kids, they don't need to be taught how to feel joy. They can turn an excursion to the grocery store into a game, an occasion for play. They find wonder in everything. But as we get older, being colorful, being exuberant, being playful, these things expose us to being dismissed as childish or superficial or frivolous or self-indulgent. And so we start to hold ourselves back from joy. We separate work from play as if those are two separate things. We feel we have to act our age. We feel that joy is something we have to grow out of. We have to put it aside to be serious. And the world around us starts to reflect this. And I think it's really important to recognize that this is a deep cultural bias. This isn't something that just you know, showed up or it's not in us naturally to be this way. Um, Gota, writing in 1810 in his Theory of Colors, he says, savage nations, uneducated people, and children typically prefer vivid colors, whereas people of refinement avoid them, try to banish them from their presence. So he's setting up an equation there, right? That to be colorful, to exhibit joy in one of the most apparent ways that we can do it, right? Every celebration around the world has bright color. To do that is to be unsophisticated and primitive and juvenile. And then you have Adolf Loos writing at the beginning of the modernist movement. And he's writing in, this, in a lecture called Ornament and Crime. He's basically equating embellishment, the decorative traditions that have been practiced in so many indigenous crafts around the world um, and often practiced by women. He's equating that with a kind of moral failing, right? A kind of wanton, wasteful hedonism. And so it's no wonder that we started to push joy to the edges of our world. Joy gets to live on beaches and playgrounds, amusement parks, uh, in nature preserves, hotels and resorts, and everywhere else is left to languish. And so the question for me is, if the aesthetics of joy can be used to find more joy in the world around us, couldn't they also be used to create joy? And this question led me um, to a bunch of different places, but one pretty interesting place um, that was created by an artist and a poet couple who, when they looked at these kinds of environments, they believed that these sorts of places are literally killing us. And so they set out to create an apartment building that they believed would reverse aging. This is it. This is a real place. It's just outside of Tokyo. I spent a night there, and it's definitely a lot. Um, it's <laughs> the floors in the apartment slope. You can see that the rooms, there is one room that has a flat floor for sleeping, but everything else has a curved floor. There are no other flat floors in the, in the apartment. That room on the right-hand side is a sphere um, that you see. And then uh, on the left, it's a, it's a cylinder. The bathroom is a cylinder. One of my favorite features of this apartment is that um, when you brush your teeth in the morning, if you're wearing socks, you have to hold on to the sink because the floor curves away from the sink. So you'll like slide away as you're trying to brush your teeth. Everything 
everything is an effort in this apartment. And it seems, you know, a bit much for everyday life, but I think that the theory behind what they were trying to do is interesting. Arakawa and Gins believe that we don't just have five senses, that we have thousands of senses. And that by failing to stimulate our senses, it's a little bit like when we don't go to the gym. When we don't go to the gym, our muscles atrophy. They believed that when we don't stimulate our senses, our brains and our sort of mind-body connection, that starts to atrophy. And, um, and so we age faster. And while this is quite far-fetched, there's some emerging research which suggests that maybe there's a little bit of a kernel of something here. Um, so for example, there's research now in animals. It's only in animals, so it's, it's still um, early days for this research, but showing that enriched, sensorially enriched environments can help forestall the progression of cognitive decline um, that comes with dementia and aging. Um, and then there's research that shows that um, people working in different kinds of environments, when people are working in lean environments, like the uh, bland work environment that made everyone laugh before, I will not subject you to that again, to looking at that again, but when we work in lean environments, or then, you know, the study also placed people into uh, what they called enriched environments, which have plants and artwork on the walls, people were 15% more productive in the enriched environments than they were in the minimalist lean environments. So I think we're designing spaces to avoid distraction, but in fact, we're actually hindering productivity in the process. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Are you making New Year's resolutions for 2020? Before you commit to another diet, workout app, or life-changing routine, hear what psychology and physiology experts are saying about how to change habits. Aspen Ideas Festival speakers discuss how mind, body, and spirit come together to make a healthy person. Go to our website, aspenideas.org, to hear endurance athletes, happiness researchers, and spiritual leaders share insights you can use. On aspenideas.org, look for the collection, The Aspen Ideas Guide to a Healthy Mind, Body, and Spirit. There's also a link in the show notes for this podcast episode. Let's get back to today's featured conversation with designer and author Ingrid Fattel Lee. So this was intriguing, but maybe not applicable to everyday life. And so it started me wondering, how do we actually bring joy back to the center of our world? And I want to share a story of someone who did just that. Um, in the year 2000, the city of Tirana, Albania, had been in steep decline uh, from 10 years of uh, decay after the fall of communism. It was rife with organized crime and corruption. Um, the city was so bankrupt that garbage just piled up uncollected in the streets. And in the year 2000, they elected a new mayor. His name was Eddie Rama. He was a former basketball player and also an artist. And Eddie Rama didn't have much to work with, um, but he took uh, the limited amount of funding he had, and he did something that probably a lot of people would think is maybe wasteful. He did this. He started to paint vibrant designs on all of the downtown buildings in Tirana. Public buildings, private buildings, it didn't matter. Um, he sketched the designs himself, had a crew of painters go around. They weren't fine artworks. That wasn't the point. Um, but what happened in the wake of this is that very quickly he noticed that people stopped littering in the streets. And then shopkeepers started to remove the metal grates on their shop front windows. They said that the streets felt safer to them, even though there were no more police on the streets than before. 
And then people started to do something even more surprising. They started to pay their municipal taxes. So something that years of enforcement couldn't get people to do, now people were paying their municipal taxes, which gave Rama money to start to refurbish other aspects of the city, the parks, and so on. And um, five years after this painting project began, the number of businesses in Tirana had tripled, and the tax revenue had increased by a factor of six. And 10 years after this project began, Tirana was at the top of the Lonely Planet's most desirable destinations, travel destinations. So it had gone from a place that no one wanted to be to a place that everyone wanted to be. And this seemed so outlandish to me when I first read about this. I believed, of course, in the power of color, but it seemed so wild that such a thing could happen. And then I started to find other people who were doing similar things. So for example, um, Ruth Land Schumann, founder of Public Color, a nonprofit that goes into neglected New York City school districts and community sites and transforms them with vibrant color. And what Public Color has found is that um, they hear from school administrators that graffiti disappears, that attendance improves, both student and teacher attendance improves, and the kids say they feel safer in these painted buildings. So, while the color seems like it's just on the surface, it's having an effect that goes much deeper. And this actually aligns with research conducted in four different countries, which shows that people working in more colorful work environments are more alert, confident, and friendly than people working in drab spaces. There's also research recently out of Vancouver which shows that people standing near a rainbow-painted crosswalk express greater trust in strangers um, and they express a greater, they, there's a measure that they ask, which is if you lost your wallet in this spot, how likely would you be to believe that it would be returned to you? People are more likely to believe that their wallet would be returned to them when they're standing next to a rainbow crosswalk than when they're standing just at a normal intersection. Um, so why would this be the case, that color has this effect? There are some researchers who see a connection to our evolution. Color, in many ways, is a signal, and the natural environment is a signal of the ingredients necessary to sustain life. It's a signal of ample water, sunlight, and nutrients that can support life. And so in many ways, when we see color, it's a sign of energy, it's a sign of life. And the same is true of our love of abundance. We evolved in a world where scarcity was dangerous to us, and abundance meant survival. And so that's why one confetto, which happens to be the singular of confetti, isn't very joyful, right? It's something you just pick off your shoe. But when you multiply it, you have a handful of one of the most joyful substances on Earth. Um, the architect Emmanuel Moreau uses this idea in her work a lot. This is a nursing home she designed. And this is actually the room where residents visit with their families. And when I visited this nursing home, also in Japan, um, they told me that families linger longer since this space has been redesigned. They spend more time. So even though it's just the space, it actually has an influence on social connection, the way people interact. Um, and I think that you know, often I hear a lot of resistance to things like that. This is a children's hospital designed by Murag Myerskoff. She's a British artist and designer. This is the Sheffield Children's Hospital um, patient rooms that she designed. And when she first went in with this design, she faced a lot of resistance. The nurses were adamant that this would be even dangerous for the children. But in sharing these designs with parents and children um, who were actually in the facility, what they found is, is a sort of very intuitive yet surprising thing, that children's rooms naturally would have color. 
So it's actually more unnatural for children to be in a space that um, is totally stripped bare and white. And it's probably the same for us as well, right? Um, and so this design was shown to families um, and they were so enthusiastic about it that eventually the nursing staff in the hospital came around and, and, uh, and this design was implemented. But I think sometimes our fear of this holds us back from it. And some of these aesthetics of joy have even been traced to specific parts of our nervous system. So researchers have placed people into fMRI machines and they've shown them pictures of angular objects and round ones. Remember I was talking about round objects before and how they're often associated with joy. And if you think about childhood, everything in childhood is round, right? Uh, we have bubbles and balloons and balls and hula hoops and merry-go-rounds and Ferris wheels. And even kids themselves are round, right? They're like rounder versions of adults. Um, so we have this association between roundness and joy, but, um, but that can actually be traced, uh, th there's actually a, a place in our brains where this seems to live. Um, so when neuroscientists place people into fMRI machines, they show them pictures of angular objects. Part of the brain called the amygdala lights up, associated in part with fear and anxiety. It's in particular the right amygdala, um, which has a, a greater association with threat. Um, and when they show them pictures of round objects, that part of the brain is silent. Um, so what they speculate is that because in nature uh, many sharp things um, often indicate danger, we evolved an unconscious sense of caution around these shapes that stays with us even today, whereas curves naturally set us at ease. And you can see this in the newly redesigned Sandy Hook Elementary School building. After the mass shooting there in 2012, they decided to tear down the building and build a new one, and the architects Fagals plus partners who was in charge of this project knew that this building could have come out looking like a fortress, right? There were so many new security regulations that this could have been all about visible safety, right? Kids learning inside a prison. Um, but they wanted to make it joyful, and so they filled the building with curves. There are these waves running the length of the building, there are squiggly canopies over the entryway, and the whole building actually bends toward the entrance in a welcoming gesture, which actually is a subtle security feature, because when you have a curved spine to a building, it allows surveillance along the inner spine, which is the, the front, so um, administrators on either end can actually see what's happening along the full length of the building. So when I look at these examples, I think that we have a massive untapped opportunity to use our spaces in ways that can help people thrive. And I think about this quote a lot, um, that when a flower doesn't bloom, we don't, um, we don't try to fix the flower. We fix the environment in which it grows. But we never think about this for ourselves. We always think about you know, what's going on inside of us and how we can address those problems. I think that this is an emerging public health issue and public health opportunity, that we have uh, the opportunity to create spaces, hospitals that heal, um, schools that help kids learn, um, workplaces that help us be our most focused and productive selves. I want to leave you with a, a story, um, a custom that um, I encountered in my research. It's a Native American custom uh, practiced by the Diné people. Um, the Diné people are also known as the Navajo people. And this is something they practice, um, it's a celebration uh, that they practice in their culture. And what they celebrate is a baby's first laugh.
So the first time a baby laughs, the person who made the baby laugh um, actually throws a party with the baby. They co-host the party. Um, they give out gifts, uh, and it's like a big festival for the, the community whenever this happens. And there's something really poignant about it to me because, of course, this makes sense um, to celebrate around this time. It's about uh, three, this is about three months in when babies actually do this, uh, when babies usually first have their first laugh, not, not precise. Um, but that's a milestone that's celebrated in a lot of cultures, right? You have the 100 days celebration in China and Korea. Um, and it's, it makes sense because it's probably a time in, in history, historically when um, child development reached past sort of a critical threshold, uh, you know, with infant mortality being such an issue, it sort of, met, it was a time, it was a really good time to celebrate. But for the Diné people, it has special significance because they believe that this moment of the first laugh is the moment when the spirit of the baby has chosen to commit to its human existence on earth. It's chosen to stay here and be part of all the ups and downs that life is going to throw at it. And so to me, there's something really moving in that, that joy, this moment of joy, the first moment of genuine joy is the moment of, of commitment to the human experience. And that joy is what makes us human on a deep level. And when we deny that, when we push joy off to the margins, when we say it's extraneous or it's a luxury, we lose a piece of our humanity. And when we do this in our society, when we say that color is a luxury and housing projects shouldn't have that because they should only just have the bare minimum, when we say that people in poverty don't deserve small joys in their day-to-day -day life, it's inherently dehumanizing because it's taking away this whole vital piece of our humanity. Joy isn't extraneous. It evolved for a reason. It's not a superfluous extra. On a fundamental level, the drive toward joy is the drive toward life. Thank you. So we have time for questions. I'd love to hear your questions. OK, let's go here first. Thank, thank you so much. This is a beautiful way to start the morning, so thank Thanks. you. Um, I have a question. You talked about um, joy spotting. Yes. And how you can, after you analyzed the pictures, you noticed you started seeing that more in your life. Yes. Do you have any other tips for having kind of a, more of a joy, joyful practice in your day for finding more joy? Oh my God, it's so great that you asked that. So I'm actually about to launch something. Um, it's a, it's like a free, just like a free printable that has. Um, it's a joy spotter's guide. And it has 12 ways to notice more joy in the world around you. And some of them are things like um, taking time to look up, because often joy is up above us, right? Um, and looking up also lets more light into our eyes. There's all sorts of reasons why looking up, it expands our posture. So there are all sorts of you know, reasons for that. Um, another one is like watching out for weirdness. Um, so uh, I have a, a friend who's, um, whose daughter asked them this question, and it's become like a practice in their house, which I really love, which is, what's the silliest thing that happened to you today? It's totally unprompted, but now they ask it. And, and what they realize is that when they look for the silly things in daily life, often it's the things that they were stressing about that weren't so important. So the silliest thing that happened to um, this 
little girl's mother one day was that she um, she got so absorbed in writing an email that she missed her stop on the subway. Like that's really silly, but it's something that we probably we beat ourselves up about. We you know there's all sorts of ways, but just recontextualizing it into the you know looking at it through the prism of weird or silliness can help bring joy. So there. A bunch like that, and that's coming out tomorrow. So yeah, so um, if you if you find me um, on Instagram or wherever, you'll be able to get that. Yeah. What's your take on Montessori environments? Um, you know, they. I'm sure you know the principles, but it's yeah. often about um, some kind of calming, pale wood and. There's an effort to not overstimulate. What do you think about all that? Yeah. So I think that um, finding the balance between over and in, under stimulation is uh, it's a it's a balance that you know we have to find for each environment individually. So I think that. Um, one of the things I'm not I'm not super familiar with Montessori environments, but I'm a, a little bit aware. I think one of the things that I would observe is that the um, materials themselves provide the stimulation, so the canvas is intended to be simple. I think um, if you then sort of look at that in a work environment, or like when kids get older and they're in a classroom where mostly they're staring at books and staring at pages and there's nothing around them, um, then it becomes really monotonous. Same thing when we're sitting at our computer and all day we're just looking at a screen and there's nothing else stimulating our senses. I think it's no wonder that we sort of get bored and we start heading for the snack cabinet because we're like, hmm, I wonder what's there. I'm just looking for some little morsel of sensory joy in my day. Um, so I think it's a balance. I, you know, we don't want everything to be screaming at everyone all the time. That's definitely not the intention. Um, but I think bringing up the baseline level so that, for example, like the textures feel good, um, that we've thought about that, or that, you know, maybe it is tone on tone, but there's like a subtle wave in the wall, whatever it is, but there's some things that increase the the sensory um, interestingness of a space. Hi, I just want to thank you yeah. for raising the issue of why there's almost a punishing environment when we build things for poor people or, um, or people who are often discarded yes. in our, our elderly or hospitalized, et cetera. So I really appreciate you elevating that. Yeah. Uh, my question is actually also about it. Um, environments and I'm curious to as to what you think about feng shui which is usually yeah. sort of calming and you know I, I think this juxtaposition between joy and, and excitement and you know invigoration versus sort of feng shui which is calming and peaceful and how you think about the two. Yeah so um, one of the things that's hard to get into it into in a talk like this is that to me, this set of 10 aesthetics of joy is a palette that we can work with. And so as a designer, I think about that as a palette. And, and so not everything, you know, a lot of the bright colored stuff that I show would be what I call the energy aesthetic, right? It is energizing, it's stimulating. Um, abundance is also, can be very stimulating. Um, but, but another aesthetic that I talk about is harmony. And harmony is very much about symmetry, about order, about um, creating flow, about balance and feeling our balance and seeing things, we all, you know, find joy in balance balancing toys, things that feel really balanced. So that's, you know, it's not that you do all of these in one place, but that you're finding the right aesthetics for the right environment. Now, to me, um, so feng shui is something I was super skeptical about. So of course, when I um, started researching this, I was like, I have to get a feng shui expert into my place, and I have to talk to one about this. And I think what I learned is that, um, the things that I was skeptical about are the claims that feng shui uh, will bring you, you know, riches and luck and like every, you know, you move things around your home and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the stories that feng shui 
practitioners often tell, it's like, she moved this piece of furniture and then she got a new job, you know, or uh, he moved this thing around and he, uh, he found a wife the next day. Like, it's just like a little too magical. And so to me, I wanted to understand where that comes from. So one of the things that I learned is that um, the practice of feng shui, the words mean wind and water, um, and that the origin of the practice um, was in ancient China around citing farms and developments. It actually, I think, was also around citing graves and ancestors, which is another, you know, a more of a, a cultural difference. But, um, but when the wind and water flow too fast, you have devastation, right? When they flow too slowly, you have stagnation. And so the, the principles behind feng shui were to allow the population to cite their farms in the way that would create the greatest prosperity for the people. And a lot of those principles have been adopted and brought indoors. And so to me, um, the flow of energy, like a lot of designers would just call that negative space, you know? And when we look at a space, we can see um, how, if it's really cluttered, one of the big things that feng shui um, experts are always talking about is clutter, because clutter, not only does it weigh on us psychologically, but it creates disorder in a space. It creates an asymmetrical environment. When we look at piles of clutter, it creates odd shapes uh, in the space in our house. And so no wonder we, when we set that in order, we feel better. Um, and it makes it easier to sort of move through the world in a way that makes us confident and, and all the rest. So I, um, I'm a believer in many of the principles and I think that we can find research that actually supports some of that, um, that research as well, that idea as well. Thank you. Um, earlier you were comparing the level of stress people feel from their cell phones to running from a lion, and I, I absolutely yeah. agree with that, 100%. But they are a fact of life, so any suggestions for how we can sort of tame that a bit? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this, actually, um, but I don't have a lot of answers yet on how we have a more joyful relationship with our technology. I think that's a, that's a big topic, um, and it's, a, it's ripe for exploration. Um, I think, though, that for me, it comes back to this idea of if you feel yourself entering a mode of chronic stress where you, there's no, it's relentless, there's no let up, it's very easy to dig in and then just say, I just have to get to the other side. When you hear yourself saying, well, I'll do that when, I'll be happy when, I'll make time for that, I'll see my family when, um, when you hear yourself doing that, that's a good trigger to say, you know what, I should do some small joyful thing now. Something, connect with a real person or watch a funny movie or watch a funny clip, even if it's on your device, that can be, it can be a conduit to joy as well, right? Um, but taking a moment, get out into nature, just take a moment to give a little, a little space to that. Um, because I think that moment of joy, it can sort of mimic a, almost like the celebration that marks the end of a, a stress cycle, and then you can begin a new one, right? But you have to give your, yourself space um, to let that subside. When you talk about corporate environments and how bland they are. So yeah. it's not always realistic to paint rainbows on every desk in an office. For sure. Have you done research that's shown that small changes, a plant on the desk or... What are some other small things that could improve and bring joy to our corporate environment that don't include a massive overhaul? Yeah, so there is research um, that shows that plant, plants is a great one. Um, there's research that shows that adding plants to a windowless um, computer room, that was the, where the study was done, um, actually decreased stress levels um, and uh, you know, made people feel, uh, feel 
you know, better to be in that environment. Um, so I think that's a big one. I think um, light is a really big one, um, natural light ideally. You know, one of the things that I see in office design is that often that um, views of nature or um, views out to the outside or um, windows are a perk. Right, you earn them by sort of growing up in the ranks. And I think if companies were actually thinking about that less as a perk to be earned and more as a basic well-being thing, um, then they would start to locate areas like cafes or, or sort of group working areas in spaces that get more natural light. Because the research shows that um, when employees have greater proximity to a window versus working in a windowless environment, they sleep 46 minutes more a night. Um, and, they, um, and they are more active during the day. So there's definitely some Something about the way that natural light regulates our circadian rhythms. I think that, you know some offices are testing out artificial light supplements to that. So, for example, um, Philips is testing out a system now uh, in certain offices that is equivalent to the boost. It gives an equivalent boost to a cup of coffee, um, but just through light. And it does it in the afternoon when people are most sleepy. So I think there are things like that. Um, I think just adding a little pop of color to your desk, just basically like looking at what this, you know, I often talk to people who all they have is their cubicle, right? They don't have control over the whole office. Um, it could be your coffee mug, you know? Like what is something that you're going to sit down every morning, look at it, and it's going to give you joy um, as you start your day. So I think it's like little, little things do have an impact. So have there been any studies on these design concepts, how it might affect youth detention centers or prisons, how it, the recidivism rates yes. of these offenders? Yes. Uh, recidivism rates, no. But there's definitely um, great research on the connection between nature and um, and aggression, right? Um, and so there are there have been studies done in prisons where nature imagery or videos have been shown, and it's decreased violent incidents by 26%. Um, there's been studies done in uh, housing projects that show that um, when there's more nearby nature, more greenery near a building, um, that it decreases the rates of violent crime around that building, um, and that it, it decreases aggressive incidents between family members even, in a household. Um, so there's definitely research that suggests that nature could be beneficial there. As far as color and things like that, all anecdotal at this stage. Um, we have like 30 seconds, so I'll take one more just here and then we'll wrap up. Quick. I love yeah. that you chose a colorful outfit and you sort Thanks. of preach, you know, you do what you, you practice yeah. what you preach. Thank I you. I applaud you. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much. Ingrid Fatel Lee is a designer and author whose work reveals the hidden influence of our surroundings on emotions and well-being. She founded the website, The Aesthetics of Joy, and wrote the book, Joyful. Previously, she was design director at IDEO. She spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keeleen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.